way. Um, I've been in touch with him this morning, and um, he's, he's praying for us, and uh, we're praying for him. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I'd like to have you take it and, and open it to Genesis chapter 48. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of the Pew Bibles, and it's on page 38. Genesis chapter 48. I'm going to read our text, have a prayer, and get into the text that the Lord has for us this morning. Genesis chapter 48. I want to begin reading at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Then Jacob said to Joseph, Almighty God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ethrath, that is Bethlehem. Jump down to verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, that they may grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the one is, first, is the firstborn. Place your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Verse 20, he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we, we come this morning to open your word. And we see how marvelous your word is because as we shall see this morning, you are a God who reveals himself to man how you're just not out there. And as we come to your word, we also know that your word is mighty and powerful, and it, it, it can cut through the hardest of hearts. And we thank you that it can restore the soul when it is weak and hurting. For those who doesn't have enough knowledge, it makes them wise. It, put, it puts within the sorrowful heart rejoicing. It gives us understanding because it is clean and pure. And we know that your word lasts forever. And it produces within your people a righteousness, not that what we could produce on our own, because our our own works in which we think please you, it falls mightily short. And so, Father, we thank you that we can come to look at the life of Jacob this morning and see the message that he has for us, to see that it is a relationship with you, not just to know about you, but it is to know you personally. And so, Father, we ask your Spirit to empower your word, 
to meet the needs of our heart, to give us encouragement, and for some maybe even conviction, but for each one of us to know that will be changed from the time that we spend within its pages. And so we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the midst of looking at the story of Joseph. And what we have said all along these two years that we've been sort of wandering through Joseph is that Joseph's story is really a story about Judah. It is looking at Jacob's life, how God is working through Jacob providentially to maintain and to make Judah preeminent within the family. And so here we see, um, as we began last time, looking at the life of Jacob as he prepares to die. And so last time sort of set the foundation for us to see um, how he was viewing his last days. And we looked at last week in a very practical way on how Jacob knew that he still had a task for the Lord to fulfill. And so we get to see that um, from the end of chapter 47 throughout chapter 48 that, um, that Jacob needs to um, give his testimony so his grandsons can hear that testimony and bless them. And so um, at the beginning, what we said last time, there was the preparation for death. Today we're going to be starting that testimony and blessing of Jacob. And then, later on down the line, we'll be looking at Jacob adopting his grandsons to make them both his own. And so if you look at verse uh, 29 of chapter 47, once again sets the tone for chapters 48 and 49. When the time for Israel to die drew near. Jacob, as we said, was 147 years old. Joseph is 57 years old. And so even though Jacob has lived a full life, it hasn't always been easy for Jacob. A matter of fact, when he was speaking to Pharaoh at the beginning of chapter 47, he told Pharaoh that his life had been pretty much very difficult. Much of which was from his own making, but that's besides the point. And so here we come as we begin to look at chapter 48, Jacob wanting to give his testimony to his grandchildren. And so my immediate question came into my mind, why does he give a summary of his testimony and walk with the Lord? And as the verses began to unfold, the answer to this question was because he had two major concerns for his grandsons. The first one is that just from Joseph's position that he had as being prime minister of Egypt, there would, there would be a natural corruption of the influence and power that Joseph had coming down to his two grandsons. And so Joseph had immense political status, immense power. He was second in command. The people of Egypt revered him because they viewed um, from verse 25 of chapter 47 that, they, that Joseph saved their lives from those seven years of great famine and how he spared them by um, um, enslaving themselves to Pharaoh to work their way out of the debt that, that they paid. And so for Joseph's children, they were there on Joseph's coattails, if you would, a part of Joseph's privileged family. And so there's a natural corruption that sort of takes place when one had immense wealth in power, in privilege, in favoritism, it affects the children. And so for uh, godly children, it would be hard for them to walk humbly with all of this privilege, and it, and, and it can corrupt one's thinking. But even more than that, even though more than, than just the concerns from their social status, he had a spiritual concern for his grandchildren. And that is why he gives his testimony. That is why he's going to bless them for the concerns that he has. Jacob wants his grandsons to have the most important thing this life can produce. And it's not the wealth that one sort of uh, collects. 
And it's not the social status. It's just not the stuff. It's a godly legacy. Jacob wants to pass to his grandsons because he is about to adopt them and make them two of the 12 tribes of Israel to be the head of those tribes. And he has some spiritual concerns, so he's going to tell them their testimony so as they look back at this time, they remember. They've heard the stories before, but before he dies, he wants them to hear it for one last time from his mouth, certain things. And we'll look at that in a moment. And so he was concerned for them spiritually. I like what Vody Bauckham has. He has a great quote concerning sending your children to a public school. And it sort of fits in here, though this has nothing to do with the pub public school. He has said this, when you send your children to Rome, don't be surprised they come back Romans. His grandchildren were born in Egypt. They knew Egyptian culture. They dressed Egyptian. They spoke Egyptian. Matter of fact, their other grandfather was a high-ranking Egyptian priest. And so it is very easy to lose sight, to assimilate all of this culture, all of the Egyptian gods into a mishmash of confusion. And he had some spiritual concerns because they were Hebrews. They had the gods of all gods in which they worshipped. You could not bring their gods with them. And so he wants his grandson to have a relationship with Yahweh God because God has made an unconditional promise to his people. And he wants them to know that. And so as they, when they look back, it's something to where it reinforces that legacy that is passed on from one generation to the next generation. And so the Hebrews were God's people. And God's people were, were to be the light post pointing the way to worship the one true God and how to worship him. And so he had some major concern for his grandchildren. And so he's going to give his testimony this time in next time, whenever next time may be, um, about three areas. And these three areas will underscore the legacy that he wants to leave with them. We're going to be looking at, he's going to tell them, first of all, who God is. And so within these verses, we see an explanation of who God is. Secondly, he's going to tell them what God has done for him. It's going to be more than just a head knowledge, how God is real to him, how God has changed his life. And then thirdly, he's going to tell them what he hopes God will do in their lives. And so, jo so Jacob pulls all of his physical energy that he can to be used by God at this moment as his body is winding down, as he prepares to die. And he makes a con conscious effort to make it clear to them in this moment in time so they hear his testimony on who God is, what God has done for them, and what he hopes God will do for them and their seed, their descendants. And so that is the legacy that he wants to pass on, that personal relationship with Almighty God. And so that should be the same thing that should be our desire with our family. Because it's easy for our children, if, if we have a Christian household, to where our children, they sort of are riding on the coattails of our faith. They come to church, they see, they see the people of the church. They see the activities that go on in the, the church. They hear about God, but he wants their grandsons to have a greater understanding of more than just knowing about God. He wants them to understand and know God because there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference 
between seeing the physical activities that God people can do versus knowing the spiritual activities that are behind those things that are going about. It's sort of like the baptism that we had two weeks ago. Children come in, they see people uh, getting wet, and they hear, uh, they hear words being said, but they may not sort of connect what is going on that the God of all creation has revealed himself to certain people to where they saw their sin, they saw how they fell short. They saw their need in the Savior to be saved from their sin, and Christ was the one who took their place. And so God is working through those activities. But sometimes we just tell them about what is going on. That's a baptism. That's, they're getting saved, and now they're telling the world. And so though they need to know about God, they need to have that deeper relationship that's life-changing, that makes those truths a reality for them. So he wants them to know. He wants them to come to faith so they can take that faith and then pass it on to their seed because this is all about the covenant. And so when Joseph, Jacob starts speaking, it begins with God, and by the time he ends chapter 48, it ends with God. It's all about God. It's all about his promises that he has and what he's going to be using with Joseph's sons to accomplish that fact. And there's some amazing things that is going to happen, that's going to happen to where his brothers have never seen it coming because... Jacob's going to adopt Joseph's sons to be just as equal of a son as the rest of them. But we'll talk more about that when, when we get there. And so there's no greater place for a parent to want their children to have faith. It's one of those struggles that a parent sort of goes through, and they yearn and they plead with God, even maybe sometimes before the children even come, that at some point they will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's young. They come to faith at a young age. Sometimes it's during the high school years. Sometimes it's during the college years. Sometimes it's in their 20s or 30s. But there is that great yearning within the heart to see that, that legacy being passed on to them. Sometimes it's the greatest pain a parent goes through, is wanting their children to have that faith because their children see sees everything about God, but they don't know him. And so that is why Jacob is going to tell his testimony because that legacy is important to them and for future generations. Because if they can come to faith and live a life that pleases God, they can pass that to their children. And they can pass that to the next generation and the following one. And then when the great-great-grandkids talk about, you know what, we had a, we had a great-great-great-grandfather. And he was godly. God did big things in his life. This is what he has done. He's done it to, then to my uh, great-grandfather and my grandfather and my father. And how great that would be to have, it, to have that same story be told about you and your children. So we're going to be looking at Joseph's testimony here. And first of all, he wants his grandsons to know the first thing about who God is. That's key. That's foundational. And there are seven aspects of God that I want to point out here just to sort of pull out from these verses. We're not necessarily going uh, verse by verse at this point, but we'll sort of come around to things. I just want to sort of pull out the aspects about God which he chooses to highlight, to stress. The first of all is found at, at verse 3. Verse 3 Joseph begins his testimony, his blessing of Joseph and his sons. And he says this, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. Stop right there. I want you to look at that word, God Almighty. It's the Hebrew word, El Jadai. 
It's more than just a fancy name for, uh, for a song, but it means God who is the mighty one. It's found translated 48 times within, within the Bible, almighty. The first time that it is used is found in Genesis chapter 17 in verse 1, where Abraham is appearing before, where God is appearing before Abraham for a second time, where God is going to reaffirm the covenant, those promises that this is what I'm going to do to you, this is what I'm going to give you. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, we find this. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, God appeared to Abram and said to him, El Jedi, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. From that point on, he begins to reaffirm the covenant on how God will multiply them and bless them exceedingly, that they will be fruitful, they'll, they'll become many nations, they will... He will establish an everlasting covenant. He's going to give them a land. And so amongst these promises that we find here, God tells Abram that he is the Almighty One. He is the one who is capable, capable about bringing out, well, and fulfilling the promises that he has made. El Jedi is a compound word. It's a compound Hebrew word. We find the word elder meaning God and Jedi meaning one who is um, all-powerful, almighty. Sort of hard to translate, but you can say he's the all-sufficient all one who does not need our help. He can accomplish anything that he wants to because there's no one or anything mightier than he. The picture is one who stands strong and immovable, dependable, sort of like a mountain. It's just, it's just there. And so, hence, the idea is the one of faithfulness, absolute dependency, and reliability. It's the first time that is found in Scripture in Genesis chapter 17. And it's interesting because Jacob uses this term for the second time, it appears, in Scripture. Out of God working in his life, he is going to describe God as the one who is almighty, all-powerful. You can trust him because he can accomplish the promises that he has made and will fulfill to his people. And so he is the El Jedi. And so he wants his grandsons to know this name of God so they can have that same trust in the one who is almighty, that nothing can stand in his way. It's interesting because as we sort of watch the evening news and things, we look at our culture and our society as sort of spiraling out of control. Things are just irrational, illogical, doesn't make sense. But then we need to remember that God is the almighty one. He is El Jedi. His plan is coming about. No one can thwart it. No one can overrule it. He's fully aware of things. And so in the times of trouble in which we need him, we can go to him because he is our El Jedi. He is our mighty one. When we feel the weight of the world on our shoulders and we don't know where to turn, El Jedi, he is there. And so Jacob wants to know, wants his grandsons to know that very fact, that God is the Almighty One. But secondly, the second aspect I want you to think about is that God is a God who reveals himself. Next part of verse 3, El Jedi appeared to me. God is the one who has revealed himself to man. And as God's revelation that he has done in the past gets uh, more fulfilled. We have a more fuller revelation, a more fuller understanding. But God revealed himself to Jacob. And God has uh, appeared to Jacob in, uh, in six different times. First time was back in Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob had a dream. And we're going to be looking at that, I think, uh, this morning, unless we run out of time. 
In Genesis chapter 31, God appears to Jacob twice. He meets the angel of God, and then God is going to speak to him in a dream. In chapter 32, he meets the angel of God, and then he's going to wrestle with God. We're going to look at that next time. And then in um, chapter 46 is the sixth appearance that God made. As God is headed back down to Egypt, Jacob is confused. Should I even, I I shouldn't leave the promised land. And God appears to him in a dream and says, it's okay. Go. And so God is a God who has revealed himself to Jacob and he has revealed himself in his word to man. It underscores the fact that God is not a distant God who is out there, far off, uncaring, just just sort of there. He He wants to be a God who is known, not to be known little about. He's not this abstract concept. But because he has revealed himself to man, he wants us to know him. He wants us to have fellowship with with him. He wants us to be close to him. God is a God who is close. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God is so close to where he has given us the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, so we have the God of all creation living inside of us. We can go to him at any time with confidence, boldly go to him and cry out to him because God is with us. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28, I want to look at very quickly because this is the reference that Jacob is referring to when he says that God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. Genesis chapter 28, I just want to pull out a a few elements here in which God is revealing himself to Jacob. Because God has revealed himself to Abraham on a number of times. He has revealed himself to Isaac. And now he wants to reaffirm that same relationship to Jacob as he had before. To say a number of things as things unfold. And so as Genesis 28 opens up, Jacob is on the run from his brother. His father says, Isaac, you better go. Isaac... Uh, your, your brother Esau wants to kill you. And so he's on the run. And in verse 12, we find that Jacob had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you in your seed, your descendants. Your descendants or seed will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your seed shall all the families of the, of the earth be blessed. I did that for emphasis because we'll talk about that in a moment. The earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. It's a marvelous dream. Maybe not necessarily a ladder, but like a a divine staircase where God's angels, God who is the sovereign one, he is the one who is in control, is above it all. And he sends out his messengers to accomplish his will. The angels are going down to accomplish it, and when they, when they are done, they are going back to then get more to accomplish for God. And so God is personally involved in the affairs of the earth is what he's painting a picture here. And God will accomplish the same promises that he has made with his grandfather and with his father with him. Once again, there are all these I wills, I will give you. Um, you will be like the dusty earth. I am with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back. And he's amazed that the Lord was in that place. And it's interesting to sort of underscore that I am with you. 
because he's on the run. And as we shall see next time, Esau, he thinks, is about to kill him, and he only had a few hours left to live. But God wants him to know that I am with him. And so that's the picture that he's um, saying in chapter 48, that the almighty God, the one who is all-powerful, appeared to me at Luz. It's a reality. I saw it. I was there. It was a dream, but it was as real as things could have been. And so he began to get an understanding that there was a God, and he appears and reveals himself to us. The same God as, as Abraham and Isaac. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 in verse 20, to where the all-powerful God, the Creator, has revealed himself so that man is without excuse. And verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen. Look at creation. You should at least know there's a creator and that he is all-powerful. Being understood what has been made so that they are without excuse. Man is without excuse because minimally they should look at creation and say there is a God and cry out to God for more revelation in which he would give them. So God is a God who reveals himself. And we have it here in his word, in his complete word. God, we have God's word, which has been written by over 40 writers, over a 1,500-year period, men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, as what 2 Peter 1 and verse 20 talks about, to reveal to mankind his revealed word. We have the exact word of God, which is infallible, which is inerrant, in the exact way in which God has wanted to reveal himself. And we can study it. We can learn from it. We can be changed by it. And so God's word is closed. We do not need any more revelation. That's why I love what 2 Peter 1 talks about in verses 2 and 3. Uh, Peter begins to sort of lay the foundation that his word is completely sufficient. He says in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need spiritually for life and godliness found in his word. We don't need any more dreams. We don't need any more revelation. It is complete. It is sufficient because God is a God who reveals himself to man to know him, to commune with him, to have fellowship with him. And so it's the God of the Bible who is exposed there, not the God of our own creation that we want God's word to say, and so we redefine God. But it's the God of the Bible that has revealed himself. But yet, but yet there's a third element that we find within these verses. In the last part of verse 3, we also find out that God is a God who blesses. That's significant. Why? Why? Because he doesn't have to. He is a God who, who is almighty. He reveals himself and he blesses his people. This is a section about blessing. If you begin to sort of look through things, you, you can sort of underline all the places that begins to talk about blessing. Trouble is, in our English culture, we don't know all that much about blessing. The most that most people know is that when a person sneezes, is they say, bless you. They don't even know where that came from. That came from the plague. The, the people were dying of the black plague, and when a person sneezed, they e equated it with, with being sick, and they wanted to bestow upon people his blessing that they would not die from the plague. And so blessing is, is the pronouncement of praise and goodwill coming from God onto someone else. God is a God who blesses his people. 
And if we had time, we, should, we could go over a, a, a numerous amount of pass, passages to be reminded that God blesses his people. And you know something? He's not cheap with his blessings. If you have your Bible, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, to just sort of underscore the fact that God blesses his people. And this is in regard to how much grace, how much his undeserved favor that he gives to us. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great chapter on, uh, on numerous spiritual blessings. But I just want to look at this. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, we find that in him we have redemption through his blood, through Christ's blood. We are bought out from the slave market of sin and the slavery that we were in, and we were set free. We were set free because of the redemption he provided through his death upon the cross, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our sins are completely forgiven. How? According to the riches of his grace. That's a marvelous, nothing that we have done, but because of his grace, his undeserved favor towards a sinner, which is rich. And how much of his grace does he give us? Well, look at the beginning of verse 8. He lavishes it upon us. Paul goes on to say, you know, grace upon grace. You know, that, that, that's how much he continues to, to give us. But he lavishes upon us his rich favor that we do not deserve. That's a tremendous amount of blessing. I equate it to um, if you ever met Bill Gates in person. Probably never, but... If you mil, uh, met Bill Gates in person and he wanted to give you $100, whips it out, say, here you go. Well, you'll be happy to take it. But then all of a sudden in the back of your mind, you go, you know what? He's a billionaire. He's giving, he's giving not in proportion to his wealth. He's just giving out of his wealth. Bill Gates, he owns a mansion in a yacht. You know, yes, that was a Flintstone reference. Sorry. He's wealthy, you know, he's billions. If he gave in proportion, he'd be whipping out a check for 100000 because you don't want $100,000, $100 bills. Uh, but he would then be giving in proportion to his wealth, not out of his wealth. He lavishes his grace upon us. God lavishes his blessing upon his people. And Jacob wants, to know, uh, wants his grandsons to know that when you walk with him, God will lavish his blessings upon you. But not just that. There's a fourth element that God wants his faith, God wants that God is faithful to his promises. Typo, it's probably a typo up there. God is faithful. To his, to his promises. Look at verse 4. I was up late last night. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your seed after you, after you for an everlasting possession. Within these ver verses, as they begin to unfold, he reiterates what was said in chapter 28 about the reaffirmation of God's promises. If you were to um, look back at Genesis chapter 12 and then chapter 15 and then chapter 17, those promises, those unconditional promises that he gave to Abraham, which centered around a, a land promise, a seed promise, and a blessing. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to occupy it forever. I'm going to give you a seed to where your descendants will outnumber the, sea, the seashore. But not just that, there will be a promised seed that will come to fulfill the promises through that seed. And you will be a blessing. You will bless the other nations through your fruitfulness. And so we get to see this reaffirmation here because it is really at the heart of their walk with God. 
He wants them to have an understanding that God has revealed himself, gave them some promises, and he is going to be faithful to those promises. Because they're in Egypt. They've never seen the promised land. They don't know what it's like. They, all they know is Egypt and the wealth of Egypt and the niceties of Egypt, the food of Egypt. They have to be told, this is, this is better, far better than what e Egypt is. And so he wants them to know that because of the promises that he has made because he is faithful to carry that out. Fifthly, look at the next part of, of the verse. He wants them to know that God is, is one who communes with his people. He is one who wants to be close with his people. The God whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. This is a term here to where it's more than just an intellectual um, uh, recognition for one day of a week to where they acknowledged this God that was out there. It's a description of a moment-by-moment -moment closeness that they had with God. He's the same God as Abraham. He hasn't changed. Same God as Isaac. He hasn't changed. He's the same God with me. They walked with him. It was a part of what, who they were. Every part of their life. They weren't different um, during one time of day, whether or not they were at the workplace. They, they weren't different in their walk with God when they were home, and they were the same, same walk no matter the circumstance. To walk with God is to have this kind of God consciousness. Everything in life which takes place has a filter of what would God have me do? It conveys the same idea as what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 in verse 16 where he talks about walking by the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. Walking by the Spirit, is that's just who you are. It's your lifestyle. It's a moment-by-moment -moment walk. So you don't have to do the deeds of the flesh. It's a moment-by-moment -moment dependence upon God. Jacob's grandfather walked with this God. Isaac walked with this God. He walked with this God. And he's implying that he wants them to walk with the same God because he communes with his people. He wants to be close with them. And in the same way that they walk with their God, his grandchildren can walk. But there's a sixth element for the few moments that we have left. Sixthly, not only was God real to both Abraham and Isaac, but sixthly, God is a shepherd to his people. God shepherds his people. Look at the next part of the verse. The God who has made my shepherd, who has been my shepherd, sorry, all my life to this day. This is the first time that God is equated to being a shepherd for his people that is found in the Bible. God shepherds his people. And it's interesting because when it comes to being a shepherd, Jacob knew all there was about shepherding because he was a shepherd. He shepherded Laban's flock for his first wife. He shepherded another seven years for, um, for, um, for Rachel. He knew about shepherding. He, he shepherded uh, afterwards as his family uh, expanded. They were a family of shepherds. He knew everything on what a proper shepherd was to do to maintain a flock, to have a prosperous flock, to have a growing flock. He knew every single detail, and he chooses to describe God in a way that describes him the best way that he could. God is shepherd for his people. Now, we've heard a lot of messages about shepherding that, that, that we could look at. But you know that a shepherd, he leads the sheep. He cleans the sheep. He protects the sheep. He comforts the sheep. Sometimes he needs to carry the sheep when they're injured. 
He feeds the sheep by bringing them to the proper pasture. He will put himself in front of the sheep to ward off danger. He will lay his life down for the sheep. He will even lead them home when it's time to go home. Jacob could have written a manual of the idiot's guide on how to sheep and how to be a shepherd because he knew everything about it. He was fully trained and he describes God as he is the God, he is the God who is shepherd of his people. You know Psalm 23, one of the most beloved and familiar passages, but there are many, many more that describe God in this way. One is found in Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 11. Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 11 says this, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nurse, nursing ewes. God is a shepherd. He tends his flock. He gathers them in his arms. He carries them. He leads them when they are nursing. And so God is described often in the Old Testament as being the shepherd of his people. But it even continues with Jesus. Remember not that long ago that we were looking at in John chapter 10 that, that Jesus is called in John chapter, chapter 10 our good shepherd. He's the excellent shepherd. He equates himself with God because that was a term used for God and he's calling himself the good shepherd. He's the kind shepherd. He came to give his life for his sheep and he came to give them life abundantly. The sheep, they know the shepherd's voice. But yet when Jesus is our shepherd, there's a future component that we're eventually going to look at when we hit Revelation chapter 7. But it should be up here. Revelation chapter 7 in verse 15 says this, For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night. So this is the eternal kingdom. And they is all of God's, uh, God's people. They're before the throne. They're serving him day and night in his temple. Who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Verse 16, they will hunger no more nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. And the key is verse 17. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Christ will always be that good shepherd. He'll always be our good shepherd. He was always there to tend to us. He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He never stops being our shepherd. But back in chapter 48, look at the last part of verse 4. Something that we could miss. God has been his shepherd all my life to this day. He's had a long life. And he equates the time before he actually knew God in a deep way that God was always there, even during those times, even during times to where his heart was far away from the Lord, God was still there. He had his rod. He had to sort of guide him in the way that he should go. And even as he looks at death's door, God is still there shepherding. He's always been there to guide, to protect to nurture, to feed, to care. And so he's saying that God is always there. We can trust in him. He's real. But yet, those are six of the components that we have. And there's just sort of one, uh, one more area that I, I just want to look at. So those are different aspects he wants his grandsons to know about God. But now in his testimony that he is going to give to them, he, is, he wants them to know what God has done to change him. What has God done for him? 
because he's not the same person as what he used to be. And I want you to look at verse 4 because there's something that I left out that you may have noticed. The God who has been my shepherd. Don't lose out on that fact. All my life to this day. He's saying that the Almighty God, who is out there, who is in control, nothing can thwart what, thwart what he does. He's my God. He's my shepherd. I know him personally. And so out of all the descriptions that he could have come, come up with God, he personalizes it. He's not just the far-off shepherd who keeps us in line. He's my shepherd. He claims me, and I claim him. There's a personal aspect about it. There's a relationship that a shepherd has with his sheep, and his sheep has with him. Now I want to look at John chapter 10 just for a moment. And we get to see this in that great passage in John chapter 10 in which Christ is not only laying out his deity, but he, he begins to show us the special relationship that he has with his people. In John chapter 10, look at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd, an excellent shepherd. I'm the best shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. There's a personal aspect. There's an ownership aspect going out. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep. That's the church. We're part of this flock too, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jump down to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. My shepherd, my sheep, they know me, I know them. They hear my voice, they follow me. Nothing can take them out of my hand. God in Christ is our shepherd. We can personally know Christ. So many times, especially we all can sort of testify that before we came to know Christ, we knew about God, but we didn't, we didn't tell people that he was my God. He's mine. I know him. There's ownership. That's why the hymn writer nails it in the hymn, I am his and he is mine. He writes this, we are loved with an everlasting love, drawn by grace, that love to know. Spirit sent from Christ above, thou dost witness, it is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine, a love that cannot cease. I am his, and he is mine. And he wants to tell his people that God is not he wants to tell his grandsons that God is not some abstract thing who is out there that we worship and can't know. We can know him so much to where he is mine. Not just Abraham and not just Isaac and not just to me, but you can know him too. He's real. And that is what our children need to see, a faith that is real in your life. Because they can know about God, they can see how God is working, but they don't know that God is real. They think he's sort of your thing that you do. But he is real. That's why, that's why when you begin to look at, with that in mind, at Psalm 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. There's a lot of personal pronouns there. David says, he's my shepherd. I shall not want. You shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Same thing with you. He makes me. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
He restores my soul. He restores your soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because the good shepherd is with me. His rod and staff, they comfort me. Why? Because he knows me by name. There's a reality to his walk that he wants his grandsons to know. Not just about God, but he wants them to know how God has changed his life. God has changed his life so much from where he used to be that we'll see next time, sometime, that, um, um, that he's changed my life that I'm no longer. So much so that I wrestled with him. And I couldn't escape. But then I got to a place where I couldn't let him go. He is that kind of relationship that we want to pass on. But it first has to start with you. It starts with you and how you view God in your walk with Christ. Is it something to where you just punch the clock one day a week? Or is it a reality for the other six days? Are you a different person when you're home with your spouse than when you are happy at church with a smile on your face? Are you a different person at, at the workplace in what, how you act and what comes out of your mouth? Or is there a consistency? Because in every facet of your life, you're walking with Christ, and Christ is walking with you. It starts with you in a relationship with him. That's why I sort of love baptism so much, as we heard two weeks ago. I enjoy doing weddings, but I love hearing how Christ has saved a life. This is where I was before, completely lost in my sin, thinking I was self-reliant, thinking that I could figure it out, thinking that I knew the way, that I could merit some way before God. But when I saw how holy he was, I could not meet that standard because I knew deep down I still was a sinner. And one day I would have to stand before him and be judged, and I would fall short. But then... I found out what Christ has done for me. He took all of my sin, all of my shame, and all of my guilt, and it was placed upon him, and he paid the eternal wrath of hell upon him and upon all believers who would turn to him. And so it starts with you. And then, if you do know Christ, it sort of starts, how are you living that out? Because your testimony just doesn't begin at your salvation it continues every day because people are watching, especially your children. Is there a reality and sincerity that they see because they will say, that's for you, that's not for me. But we can show them. God has not only changed my life, but he continually is to change my life because I am walking with him by faith every day because when I am weak, he is strong. And I am weak every day. And so that's what he's underscoring, and that's why we can't finish. But we'll do it next time. Because he's going to get to the place where he's going to adopt as equal sons as Joseph and the other 11, his two sons. Because he wants to give Joseph a double portion blessing. And it's going to come through through Ephraim and Manasseh. It's going to lay down that foundation that they are one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this passage is significant. It's not a throwaway passage, especially chapter 49. We, many people throw that one away. It's just a bunch of names. Ooh, I can't wait till I get there. I thought I would get there for next time, but we're not. Father, once again, and it's so easy to say, there's so much more than what could be said. But when we get to see that you are a God who is accessible, 
that in which we can come boldly before the throne because of the faith that we have in Christ, that we can proclaim the message of the gospel to someone who is hurting. And if there's someone here who has never turned their life to Christ, if there's someone here who, if they were to die today, they wouldn't know where they would go. Father, give them in understanding. Have them speak to someone here that we could open up God's word and to show them that it is not what they do that gains merit before God, but it is what Christ had done. And God grants eternal life because of the accomplishment and the redemption through his atonement that was done on the cross. And yet, Father, for us, it's a stinging testimony of how is my life that is on display. If when I pass, Father, what will they say that my life represented? Or will they say, what an amazing life that he walked with God and God walked with him? And then when we stand before you, we'll love to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So thank you, Father, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.